welcome to TA1. Everything you wanted to know about adventure racing and then some. I'm your host, legendary Randy Erickson. And for once, um, actually have something to talk about in our introduction. First off, we've got real guests this week, and they are good ones. So got that going for us. Two, my um, friend Emily Korsh mentioned in a Facebook post, why isn't there some place uh, where everybody can find uh, race recap videos? So uh, now there is. There's a Facebook page, Adventure Race Video Recaps. Um, what I kind of envision is a place for um, not better videos, but I'm going to say better videos. So things that have been edited to tell a story or lots of pretty pictures. No offense, but not... Um, not shaky GoPro footage of your teammate falling in the water. Maybe maybe if there's enough demand, we could start a page like that. Adventure race teammates falling in water videos. What do you think? Just say the word. I'll start it. It ain't hard. I'm getting so I can start a Facebook group in about five minutes. <clears throat> so there's that. And thirdly, but not lastly, I've had some contact with a group called the, <clears throat> I have to say it right, Rebel Rally. It's not Rebel. No, it is. No, it's Rebel, not Rebel. Like Rebellion, not like Johnny Rebel. Anyway, um, this is an all-female, off-road, motorized rally. But the thing that is uh, might be interested to... Uh, some adventure racers is the fact that it is all navigated by map and compass. They start uh, at South Lake Tahoe and finish up in San Diego. It's like eight or nine days. Kind of a row gain format. Um, some of the checkpoints are virtual. Some of them you uh, actually have to go. <clears throat> I'm not sure if you have to punch, but um, I last year... When I was in, uh, went to the Baja, talked to a few ladies that had done it. it sounds like it's a fun time. Um, so they have a group camping set up every night, and um, like gourmet <clears throat> meals, showers, things like that. But then one night during the rally, you're out all night. So anyway, um, point being, they have more drivers than navigators. So um, there's some some uh, adventure race people, ladies, that were interested, and hopefully hooked them up a little bit. And we'll see if they show up. But uh, especially if any of you are really interested, I can uh, I got a I got an in for you, so I can uh, pass on your information to that. So that's it. This um, it's going to be a long one because. Brett's there. So that's it. Go fast, take chances, and uh, thanks for listening. Bye. Hi, Randy. Hey, are you all done mapping? <laughs> I'm almost done writing my race report for uh, a race I did this weekend. Oh, so 
what about seventeen thousand words. Yeah, maybe maybe kept it under fifteen this time, mm. but you never know. I could always add a few more. <laughs> well, I for one love long race reports. In I've had I've had chats with people that I, I think uh, people like to read stuff, even if it is the internet. So you go, girl, with your long race reports. <laughs> I'm honored that you just told me to go, girl. <laughs> well, you know, I like I like to make everybody's day and say things that you didn't know you'd hear. <laughs> so, for the record, I wrote our XPD report, though. Okay, which was a good one. You know, I don't, I don't know. You know, how do you how do you write anything good about that race? You hardly had any results. Yeah, we had nothing good to say about that one. So, well. Let's start there. Jimmy Jimmy's all wants to know about Australia. So I think when we talked last, you weren't going to be able to go, right? Me? Yeah. Yeah. So in the middle of Worlds last year, I said to my teammates, I was like, hey, guys, you know, I'm in a really good space, like, mentally right now. I'm feeling really good. And... Brent, I've decided that I don't want to do two expedition races next year, so you should go do XPD by yourself. Um, so we got home from the race, and I told my parents that they were off the hook for childcare, um, and kind of went about my business, and then Brent worked on figuring out a team, and he was getting shot down left and right, and then we went in on nationals, and I got the itch to race again, um, and we didn't have childcare. So we were kind of trying to figure that out, and I was resigned to not doing it and supporting him and doing it. And then my parents called out of the blue and said, you know, we really want to support all the work you guys have been doing and um, you should go and do it and we'll hang out with, with Zoe while you do. So it worked out. Well, they're, um, sound like good people. What, they're, they're what did rough. you, yeah. What did you have to, uh, how many bottles of wine did you have to bring them home? <laughs> what did we bring home? We actually didn't bring any gifts home except for a stuffed animal for Zoe. No. Um, but we did get them a nice gift certificate to a restaurant. Uh, yeah, you know, they're uh, they're just, you know, taking care of her and just uh, spoiling her rotten and going to pay back for, for um, you're making them miserable for so many years, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and then we, get, we get to deal with the... Uh, the results of that spoiling when we get home. Yeah, well. Um, but, but Randy, of course, the most important thing to, to note from Abby's story there is no one wanted to race with me until <laughs> Abby said she was going to race, and then all of a sudden our team came together. So if that tells you anything about our dynamic as racers, <laughs> I think that's all you need to know. Oh, goodness. <laughs> well, you can't argue with facts, right? <laughs> yeah. So... Um, in case anybody didn't know, you tell me who you raced with and which one of them was more fun. <laughs> well, well um, who, which one does not listen to the podcast? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, so we raced with Eric Caravella, who normally races with the Naira crew in New York. And, um, you know, we're, we're good friends with him from the race course. We've never raced with him before. But as always, as these things go, you, you always seem to – team up with your opponents for the big races. Um, 
And uh, we kind of started talk. I started talking to him actually about that just before Abby committed to to race. So uh, he was kind of interested, but not sure since we didn't have anybody else lined up. And then when Abby came on, he he committed to doing it with us. Um, and then uh, kind of on a whim, like we we really did. We reached out. I especially had reached out to you know, a lot of different people from a lot of different teams and, um, you know, no one was able to do it. And, you know, Tasmania is kind of on the other side of the world. So it's a little <laughs> bit hard for most people to commit to. Mm-hmm. But then we remembered that, um, the Van Gorders from Dart Noon had moved to Hong Kong last year after world. So we kind of thought, well, we really don't actually know them very well. We spent some time with them at worlds out on the course and, you know, we've seen them here or there at a couple of other races, but um, they're not people we actually know uh, as well as some of the other teams we race against. Uh, but we figured why not ask? They're close, um, relatively speaking, and maybe Ryan would be interested in doing it. And sure enough, we, you know, we reached out to Ryan, and a month or so later, he was signed on, and we were ready to go. Yeah. Do you, you know, when you're looking for people, do you, do you say to yourself, Come on, people. Why wouldn't you want to do this? <laughs> yes, he totally does. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, yes and no. Yes, and like you always get excited and you have those initial contacts. I mean, there were half a dozen people that all, you know, responded by saying, yeah, we're interested. This sounds awesome. We'd love to do it with you. And then you know how it goes. You, yeah. you start digging into it and you start looking at what's the schedule look like and what do the expenses look like and understandably most of the time most people have to kind of say no um to those big international races um there were also a lot of americans who had gone over there for worlds in 2016 so i think that affected some people's interest in going back yeah i it, it's just it's just a long ways oh god who's 40 hours door to door eric uh, computed it wow <laughs> well but you know when I go to Belize, it's like 29 hours, and that's yeah. like yeah. just south of me, so I don't feel too bad for you. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Which, yeah. oh, so before I forget, um, Brett, what did you do on the airplane while you flew for 40 hours? <laughs> Why is he asking me? Eric just posted the picture of me who wants to be a millionaire. Wow, that that was a strange question on first glance. Um, yeah, I, I did play a lot of Who Wants to Be a Millionaire, and I came so close to winning the million dollars, but um, sadly, I didn't. I didn't win. It was the um, British version of the game, and so a lot of the questions were pretty obscure for an American audience. Yeah, yeah, did, yeah. But did that kind of make it fun, not knowing? Absolutely, and then especially when. You were on hour four of playing it, and you realized you knew exactly what the British called, you know, a donut. It, you really felt like you'd learned a lot. <laughs> so what do the British call a donut? I actually have no idea. I don't no. remember. <laughs> but for one night of my life, I knew every time that question came up, and I was psyched. Yeah. So, Abby, what did, what did, uh, what did you watch for that? Gosh, I watched, of- like, 15 movies. Um <laughs> And also read Nathan's book, which was illuminating and fun and got me excited to race XPD because we had, um, the week before, we had watched the video of the last Tasmania race, which was 
as, as the video portrayed it, just an, ep an exercise in suffering, uh, we've heard from a lot of people that the course wasn't actually that, but the video did not make me excited to go race. So Nathan's book helped alleviate some of those trepidations. Yeah. So what, um, what was your expectation of the race versus reality? Well, so, um, you know, we ended up ultimately signing up for the race largely because of me. I'd been, I, I, XPD has been at the top of my list really since I started adventure racing and became aware of the big international expedition races. And, you know, certainly in the last number of years, God's Own has emerged as another race that, of course, has a, you know, kind of a unbelievable reputation. But um, XPD was the, the first race that I really felt like I heard about. Um, I just kept hearing about it, like almost universally from people that we knew or seeing reference to it online, just as kind of a stellar race, both in terms of the course, but also in terms of the organization. And I mean, you know this from being around so many different races, like when you get that combination of a great course and great organization, like you, you really end up having an excellent experience. There's so many races that you know either are really good at kind of the polish and the bells and whistles but maybe don't have the best courses at least from what we're looking for um or the opposite where you get a really amazing course but maybe not all that uh, you know infrastructure the, right the infrastructure is not all that well developed um and you're kind of out there on your own so that was kind of why i had been looking at this race for a long time but you know, as I think we've talked about in the past, as teachers, we're really limited usually to summer expedition races. And, and this year, it just it just happened to coincide uh, with my spring break for the most part. And, um, you know, Abby was able to kind of minimize the amount of time she missed from, from her teaching. So we went down excited. I went down saying to Abby, this is going to be the best race that we've ever done. And I think it could end up being one of the best, if not the best races we ever do. And uh, I was confident in that, and I was thrilled to be able to walk away from it saying it met all of those expectations. It it, it was an extremely well-run race, and then every single leg just felt like it got better. Um, every single race felt kind of epic and spectacular, even if they weren't necessarily the longest, most epic sections. They, they all just felt so diverse and so well put together. Um, you yeah. have to be on your toes the whole time in terms of navigation and strategy and all that. Um, going into the race, I had a really hard time kind of wrapping my head around the fact that we were doing an expedition race in Tasmania in the middle of the school year. And I just, like, I couldn't get there mentally or emotionally to the point where, like, we're packing the week before and that night we're lying in bed looking at maps for Untamed New England trying to figure out what the course is because <laughs> that felt easier to figure out or, like, to to conceptualize then what, what Tasmania would be. I just, like, I couldn't see it. Um, and once we got there, that, that that went away some. But for whatever reason, it was really hard for me to, to gear up for it. Well, come on, you're, you know, you're flying out, you're going over the edge of the earth to the other side. That, that's hard to get your brain around. <laughs> yeah, and usually, as Brent said, we do expedition races in the summer where you have, like, months of anticipation. Yeah. And I work in the summers. I, I, you know, I, I write and I do research, but my flexible my schedule is a lot more flexible, and I can dedicate time to kind of thinking about racing an awful lot, whereas during the school year, that's harder to do. So it just felt kind of, like, inserted into the madness of life. Yeah. I'm glad, I'm glad we did. <laughs> yeah. Um, 
And we'll get back, but I and I don't know if I've asked you this before, but I know you've wrote a couple of books, right? Um, I wrote one, and I'm finishing up a second one and a third one now. All right. And what are they? What are they about? Because I've I've seen them, and I don't really know. Uh, <laughs> loosely, they are about um, the sec- second half of the 20th century kind of U.S. culture and race relations. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Well, that's she, I, writing is hard. I I, I applaud you. <laughs> She's being a bit a bit vague. Her her first book was was really actually a book about um, our community, our neighborhood, which is one of really only a handful of um, urban communities in the entire country that um, kind of intentionally avoided the patterns of white flight that kind of dominated northern cities um, during the you know 1940s, 50s, and 60s. Um, so it's a pretty kind of special place and a pretty special story and a pretty unique one um, because it's a the rare situation where kind of a white neighborhood said we're not leaving, but not only are we not leaving, we're going to welcome in you know other groups of people and actually coexist with them peacefully and and try to make this work rather than abandoning ship like like most people did. So um, her first book is actually much more than just a, a little book about social history, if you yeah. will. Is it? Scholarly, or would I enjoy reading it? Both. I'll answer that because he's the scholar. Um, (laughs) As also as a history teacher, but as a high school teacher, I can also say I was actually um, I was doing a graduate degree myself when she actually finished writing the book. So when I read it, uh, I was also looking at it probably with that kind of eye of a history student in a in a master's program so I've been reading all of these scholarly very 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 scholarly books most of which were maybe enjoyable intellectually but rather boring to read Um, you know so I actually think that her book it is scholarly um, absolutely but it also is much more I would say readable and digestible than your average historian's book and and let's, let's do the whole author thing where is the book available at? <laughs> uh, you can order it on Amazon or Barnes and Noble in paperback or, or hard copy or your local independent bookstore. <laughs> you did that very well. Well, it, it's it's kind of funny because it's sort of the same way, but from the from a different from the other side. Because I've been reading the history of Stax Records in Memphis. Yeah, cool. Which was um, you know a black company that you know. Basically, it was started by a white brother and sister, but um, you know, and they they stayed there forever in the neighborhood and and did the work. So, is that a book I, that you're reading? Yeah, yeah, it's really good. And then and then it has the advantage of thinking, oh, I'm going to start listening to a lot of Isaac Hayes and uh, yeah. Booker T and stuff. So, <laughs> but I I think I might have to read your book and and not. <laughs> Because it sounds interesting to me, but we all know I'm weird. (laughs) To get off on a tangent, but for me, one of the reasons I became a historian is because I really like telling stories. Um, And that's why I like writing race reports, too. I just really like kind of, you know, being able to reflect on on what's happening and and make it accessible for other people. So when you write, how many – this goes out – do you guys know Anne Marie Dunhill? 
Yeah, we listened to your interview with her. I really yeah. enjoyed it. I'm, uh, this is one of my little friendly reminders because I'm trying to convince her that she needs to write a book because she's got some good stories. But just me dropping stuff. <laughs> so when you write, do you have a set amount that you write a day or, or do you just have to work it into real life? Well, it is kind of real life, isn't it? Yeah. The first book I wrote, I was much more kind of able to carve out time in, in that kind of like, I'm going to write this number of words a day or I'm going to write for this number of hours. And the book I'm working on now for a variety of reasons has been, been a lot harder to do that with. Um, some of that is because of my own kind of brainwaves and some of that is our schedule. Um, so this one is much more just fitting it in where I can, but it's due August 31st. So it, it will be done by the end of the summer. Yeah, yeah. Well, you, you might want to have it done before Untamed, so you don't have to think about it. Uh, kind of my goal. <laughs> <laughs> so, all right. So this adventure race thing is hey, that just hey, like a hobby? Randy, no. <laughs> yeah. quick, quickly, I just want to before we lose track of it. If Amory's listening, and if she's not, you should should tell her this because I know that she was kind of. Um, uh, a little bit self-deprecating with the idea of writing a book. I, I think it's a terrific idea because um, yeah. I do think that you all see you know, so many different things than we do. I mean, we see a lot as a race team, but we really only have like our you know one version of a race. And you guys see all sorts of different things happening in every single race. Um, I read a book, and I can't remember the, the name of the book or the author, but um, – a journalist uh, wrote a book about Ray Galois from... like the toughest race in the world or something. Yes, that sounds about right. Um, and he wrote a, a book about about the race and loosely about adventure racing in general, but really specifically about Raid. And uh, it was hands down the best adventure racing book I've ever read. Hmm. Uh, and granted, he also did go on to enter the race and compete in it once or twice just to kind of get that experience as well. But a lot of his writing was really much more from the journalistic side of it, the behind-the-scenes side of it, and just the quality of the writing was such. So absolutely, Anne-Marie should be writing a book about adventure racing, and I will be the first one to sign up and buy a copy. Yeah, she's got two readers in our house. Yeah, that'd be good. I actually um, have been trying to convince her to write about um, Abu Dhabi because she covered that twice, I think twice. And it's kind of a race, I think, that's really fading from people or they didn't know it, so... Um, yeah. Ah, hi, Anne-Marie. You're going to have to write a book. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, okay. So this is the part, Abby, where we can go to the other room because Brett's going to tell us about the race. <laughs> oh, people should probably know, if they don't, that you guys finished second. That's pretty good. <laughs> Thank you. So, so tell me about the race. The good, the bad, the ugly, the the songs you sang at 2 a.m. Bohemian Rhapsody. That's a good one. Every night. <laughs> yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I, I mean, yeah, it was. Uh, I'm I'm just trying to kind of think of where to start. I mean, it was it was one of those races where you know again we never raced with Eric, we never raced with Ryan. Um, those kinds of races, you never quite know what you're going to get. You know, we generally take an approach of kind of walking into races with kind of an open mind. We don't, we try not to set too many competition goals for ourselves. Um, I mean, we certainly had, you know, general aspirations for this race, but, you know, we knew it's a big expedition race. It's international. Um, you know, we knew there were 
at least a couple of, of very good uh, Australian local teams there. Um, you know, there were a, a number of teams we had no idea about, and so we kind of just figured, uh, you know, if we can kind of be up, you know, somewhere in the top, maybe five or so of the 20-something field, we'd be pretty happy with that. Um, so, you know, we really went in just kind of focusing on having fun with each other and trying to be efficient and just kind of running our own race, and that's what we did. And, um, you know, the first uh, day or two of the race, uh, there was a lot of, I guess the day, the first day of the race, uh, a lot of teams were, were really close to each other with the exception of the, the team that ultimately won, the Antelopes, who, who got ahead pretty quickly, which we... I think everyone kind of expected them to do. Um, you know, and then we just kind of settled in and we, we kind of did our thing and we were, I think, smart about sleep and, um, you know, we just, you know, again, kind of had fun and generally speaking did well with navigation. We did have a few kind of like just a few things that didn't go well with navigation, some of which were our fault. Some of them were, I think, kind of bad luck type things. And, um but we just recovered well and, and kept racing. So I think from a kind of a racing standpoint, you know, that's just that's kind of what we did, and it worked out. It was one of those races where about halfway through the race, I think we kind of took over second place, and, and then we held it. And uh, it got hairy at the end. I'm, I don't know if you followed it or if you kind of uh, – you probably maybe did read this Navi's race report, but mm-hmm. uh, we did ultimately end up in a, kind of a sprint race for the last two legs with a, an all-male team. Um, which was pretty intense considering that Ryan was in a place where he could barely really walk anymore. And, uh, uh, you know, we just weren't sure we were going to be able to hold them off. Uh, but we did, and it was a really exciting way to finish the race, even though I think we all kind of felt like we were in a collapse of heart attacks when we reached the finish line. Why, um, you know, in the last three or four years, these stupid sprints to the finish yeah are really becoming like oh yeah another one of those um do you you have a reason for it or is everybody just getting better or you know more uh you know are there more good teams and, and it's just working out that way i don't i don't know i mean it certainly does feel like going back to um i mean i remember that i think it was the costa rica race where you know, there were just four or five teams all kind of within a few minutes of each other and yeah. AMK passing Thule, I think, right at the end and Thule being upset about it. And it certainly was an epic end of the race. And then you're right. It feels like every big race that felt like there were there were finishes like that up near the top. Yeah. Um, I, I honestly don't know if that, that is something that's relatively new or that's kind of how it's always been. And we just, you know, haven't necessarily heard, heard of those stories as much. Well, yeah, that's very good because obviously I think the coverage is getting better. Yeah. I'm, yeah, I'm not sure it's maybe the race directors are doing, starting to do better jobs of making them races. Yeah, I, that, I mean, certainly, I mean, the way that um, the end of XPD was set up, it, you know, it really allowed kind of for like a, a very quick finish. and But still, like if teams came in three hours apart, it's not like they would have been able to make that up. Um, no. Right. With, with- this this race in particular, like we would see Dash the last, we saw them in this, the TA between the, the the trek where we got all turned around and the second big bike. So we knew they were like near us, and then it was just our bikes and or our bike boxes and their bike boxes at the next TA. So again, we like we had a sense that they were 
in the vicinity. It didn't feel like totally out of the blue when they caught us on the beach. Yeah. So it's yeah, a- I, I actually, I, I don't, as always on, on your podcast, I always have a moment where I say, I don't know if I agree with Abby. <laughs> um, just because, you know, we got out of that TA onto this big beach trek. We had a, it was like a 40, about a 40 kilometer beach trek. Um, we started off around like one at night. Um, this was night four. So we're of course not in great shape, you know, neither are they, but not in great shape in terms of sleep. Um, and, uh, you know, we had five hours of darkness along pretty much a featureless stretch of sand. And it was, that was like by far to me the, the hardest part of the course mentally. Uh, it would have probably been better in the daylight, but it just was, you know, endless and- sand with nothing breaking it up really. Um, so, you know, 10 minutes into the section, we're stopping for, for Ryan to help him stretch out his back. Eric and I are kind of taking his gear to alleviate him of that. We keep on. We have to stop twice for me to sleep a little bit. We took to like 10, 15-minute catnaps. We're all sleepwalking down the beach. Um, you know, but like you could see back for miles and like literally miles and miles along the beach. And we kept looking back and we didn't see any lights. So we really thought we were... At one point, Eric said he saw... We did. No, we saw we saw lights after our second sleep. But they still, they looked to be way back. Um, Not anywhere close enough that we were all that concerned about them Mm -hmm. catching up. Um, And we just, you know, we kept on. And then it it was the last hour of the trek. You know, the sun had been up for four or five hours. And the last hour of that trek, we look back and and they drop onto the beach close enough that we can really kind of get a sense of of who they were. Um, And from there, it was just kind of pandemonium for for (laughs) both teams. Yeah, I know it was for them too. Probably maybe more so than for us. They had a flat tire they had to change in their transition boxes when they got to the final bike. Um, there was this kind of math problem type uh, uh, end to the beach trek where we had to get across a channel using two kayaks. One was on each side of the channel, and there were PFDs and, and paddles in each one, and we had to get everybody across, but we had to make sure that we left the appropriate paddling gear for other teams. And we managed that pretty well, but I know they kind of screwed up the math and at one point um, lost some time because they had to go back and bring PFDs back to the other side or something like that. So, you know, they, they you know, if they hadn't made those mistakes, it probably would have been like a five-minute race at, at the end. And who knows who would have who won. Yeah. yeah. So can so, you um, tell, me tell me how you how did the math problem? problem? <laughs> <laughs> Do you remember? Yeah, it was. There was a lot of yelling. It was. It was. It was basically. You know, we kind of. We had kind of figured it out. Like it. It wasn't that hard. It was really just making sure that you left the two PFDs and two paddles on the the well, non TA so side of the channel. Explain and, what it looks like, though. Like. Well, well yes. Yeah, so you, you arrived to this big channel at the end of the beach, and on the other side of the channel there was the TA, right? And there's a mm-hmm. kayak kind of on the far side of the low tide zone uh, on the other side, and, and there's a kayak on the near side. So Eric and I jumped in um, the kayak on the near side, and we paddled across, and then we had to run across the, the low tide flat to get the other boat, which had the other PFDs and paddles on it. And we brought it back, uh, and then we each paddled one kayak across, mm-hmm. and got our other teammates into their gear, and we paddled them to the TA side, 
Uh, and then the, the kind of the thing that I think teams missed because they were tired is you dropped people off and one person tended to turn around and paddle back across the channel, not realizing that everybody was on the other side with the PFD still. Yeah. Uh, and so people were, you know, what Dash did is two of the guys had their PFDs on and they basically walked to the TA and their teammates are yelling at them to come back because they needed their PFDs to leave them on the other side of the channel. Um, because it was low tide, we actually probably could have just waded across, but you weren't allowed to swim. You had to kind of figure out this Mensa problem in order to continue on. Yeah. So, yeah. And it probably was a Mensa problem at that time, right? That time, it, it absolutely was. And then, it, you know, Jared Kohler from Australia is there with a camera in your face, like filming the whole thing, asking you questions while you're doing it and getting ready for it, which doesn't really help in yeah. terms of the focus. <laughs> I, but, I think he was doing that on purpose. Uh, yeah, I, I think so. Yeah. yeah. So, um, how long did it take you guys? Or, and and was there maybe like an aha moment um, that you were working as a team with the new guys? Um, yeah, we talked about that a little bit after the race. It never felt like we weren't working as a team. Like. The four of us had had enough experience collectively to kind of know how to get through TAs and whatnot. Um, and obviously, Ryan has raced at a different level from the other th- th- the three of us. Um, but it did feel like the first day we just weren't quite moving as efficiently as we could be. Like a little bit more stopping on the bike, a little bit more kind of everybody doing their own thing instead of of, of focusing on the collective. Um, and I'm not sure what the moment was where that shifted, but there came a time, I think, in the first half of the race, it wasn't halfway through, where all of a sudden it did feel like we were just kind of firing differently. Um, and the TAs were going a little bit more smoothly, and just in general, like our efficiency through the legs picked up quite a bit. Huh. That's yeah. Um, yeah. Go ahead. I was going to say, I, I, I agree uh, that it was probably – that first day it was totally true, and we, and we literally did. I mean, I remember saying it to Ryan in the woods, and I said it to yeah, Abby. Yeah, we talked about the fact that you know, it just we felt were just like, like we were kind of pokey. But but for no tangible reason, and I don't even know that I would say it was because the four of us hadn't raced together mm-hmm. before. It it just felt like nothing was quite efficient. Yeah. And then, um, you know, we had the race started with two or three pretty short legs, and then there was a longer bit of a longer bike ride over the first night. And when we finished that bike ride. We knew we had done pretty well with the navigation, um, and there was definitely tricky navigation on some of the biking. And when we got to the transition, we were we were virtually tied for second with another team. And I think that that and we, and we hadn't been in second. We you know moved up a few slots to, to get up there. And I think for us that really kind of like lit a bit of a fire under us. Uh, not that we didn't have one, but I think it, it just helped sharpen everything. So, you know, we got out of that TA in second place. I think the other team stopped to sleep a little bit, and we got out in second and then uh, kind of walked into a pretty hellacious section where we actually lost time. But I think it also kind of forced us to, like, really work together and just get through it and, you know, have that moment where you can either kind of overcome the adversity or you can kind of, like, lose your mojo. And we kind of chose to really stick with it and um, just kind of push ahead and... So from then on, I think we we really kind of raced very efficiently throughout the rest of the race, really. Yeah. Yeah. And racing with Ryan, in addition to him having, like, fantastic stories to tell about pretty much every other team that has ever raced in international racing, um, 
he also just like he had a few moments during the race where he was like no let's let's think about this and they weren't big things but they were small tweaks that I think made us think about efficiency more um, like for instance I had you know some issues with my feet coming off of a trek and going onto a bike and I was like oh I think I want to stop and just get them really worked on now he was like well why not just dry them out at the TA and then you know we get on our bikes and while you're on the bike nothing's going to happen to them like they'll be fine and then if they still need it you can do it before the next track and you know it was a small thing and it probably would have been 10 minutes but those 10 minutes ended up being pretty important Mm, um so i think racing with him added some moments of like just eye-openingness for lack of a better way to say it yeah it's listening to you it, it it i'm i'm uh not a revelation or anything but I don't know if it's the sport maturing, but I haven't heard uh, any horror stories recently with, you know, new teammates. And it seemed like back in the day, you know, 10 years ago, 9 years, 80, that there was more of that. Um, do you think it's just because all the racers are maturing a little bit and everybody is kind of knows what they're doing and... Um, Maybe. You know maybe, what I'm saying? Did, yeah. Uh, you know, I think for us, we were really intentional about who we raced with and I think in general are. So it might also be some that people are just getting, you know, better at choosing yeah. compatible teammates. Or we got rid of those people. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I also think, I think it's a lot easier now. I mean, at least I imagine. I, I wasn't racing 15 years ago. Um 10 years ago in big expedition races, et cetera. But, um, you know, I think it's, it's, I imagine it's a lot easier now to go out and kind of do your homework on somebody, right? Like you see a name, you you put out a call for somebody, somebody reaches out. It's not very hard for me to go out and figure out, okay, what has this person done? How have they done with that team? And, um, you know, I think at least for experienced racers, like we know, you know, you always kind of know at least somebody that was on a team somewhere, usually, uh, yeah. in a big race. Yeah, we get emails, not regularly, but several times a year, saying, hey, I know you know this person. How do you think they jive with the team? And um, and we ask those questions of other people. So it's such yeah. a close-knit community with social media that it's easy to do that. Yeah. 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 I, I, you I, say I, that, and I do, too, yeah. 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 I certainly know the horror stories are still happening. I'm not naming names or teams, but I know it's still happening. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, I, I certainly think it seems like looking back on some of the big races that used to be on TV and such, you did see more of those stories where teams just kind of blew up on each other higher up in the race, right? Like the top teams really struggling with that sometimes. Yeah, And I'm not sure if that's happening as much anymore. It's a good point. Well, you would think it would because we hear everything else. Yeah. Where the cameras aren't catching it in the same way. I mean, I know in, in Australia and at XPD, the, the first and third place co-ed teams who are, who are both, you know, um, strong, experienced um, local, uh, local teams from Australia, um, neither one of those teams had had raced together as a unit before. Um and, uh, like, on the, the winning team, one of the guys, I think, Tom, yeah, I mean, Tom has only really been, you know, adventure racing for a year or so, and, and he walked onto a team um, with some very experienced uh, uh, Australian racers, and sounds like, for the most part, at least, if not entirely, was seamlessly integrated into it, and obviously they did great, so. 
Yeah, yeah. I think for various reasons in the U.S. there is more, um, like, like um, people have their teams that they race with, and obviously there's some interplay, but, but I think for for reasons that have to do with kind of the way series are set up and that kind of thing, people tend to have their home teams more than than maybe in At Australia. Australia yeah. um, though I think the A1 series over there might be changing that some. So, yeah, that kind of makes sense. And we, I, I think we're spread out more than even even the Australians, you know. So maybe they they just see each other. You know, the the Kiwis just they're born to it, so they're they're just different. Yeah, and they clearly <laughs> have their systems and. Yeah. Yeah, they're units. Though even with them, you, you see them, you know, obviously not Seagate at Worlds, but, uh, you know, at XPD, or sorry, at, at Godzone, it's always fun to see which Kiwis are, are, are racing with which because they yeah. often do end up mixing it up at Godzone at least. So, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, Abby's comment about the Australians and comparing them to us, that actually came from them. They, after the race, we were talking to them, and, and they all kind of expressed the same thing, that they just didn't feel like they had maybe as much of a cohesive um, race scene as we do in terms of established teams. They just tend to mix a lot more, it sounds like. So. Yeah, so we started thinking about why that might be, and the best answer seemed to be, you know, we have USARA and NARS and all these teams that, or, or, or all these series that make you have concrete rosters. Um, so that was our, kind of the best guess that we came up with. Yeah, and I think even you get in a little more, you know, expedition even in the U.S., you know, those teams are a little more fixed. There's, yeah. There, there's one or two people that'll that'll float from one to the other, but um, yeah, for, right, it's becoming a little incestuous a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah. that's good for. You. Um, so you guys got a race coming up, not very far away, is? A race? Yeah. yeah. The, the yeah. Sylvan race. Yeah, Which, the Sylvan is a, a 12-hour race that we're hosting in a few weeks on May 12th. It's the inaugural race, and our teammate Brian Rice is putting it. He has designed the course, and um, it's a course that he has kind of been working on for several years, so he's really excited to, to put it into practice. He and Brent met this evening over a beer to finalize the maps. Oh, cool. It's, uh, it's pretty funny because I'm sitting here, so I've got – you know, Facebook up on one screen and and the Sylvan Adventure Race page up. So I <laughs> preparation in quotation marks. But the uh, <laughs> my uh, screen background on the other one is literally an aerial shot of Sylvan Lake in the Black Hills here. Oh uh, no! Kidding. <laughs> it's like, hey, oh wait, <laughs> that's kind of funny. But it's all ice covered and but anyway. So um, how's it? Uh, how's the race looking? You going to have a good turnout? Uh, we have about 65 people registered at this point. We're hoping that, uh, you know, we have, we have three weeks, so we're hoping that some more folks sign up. But for an inaugural race, we're okay with that field. Um, yeah. There's a lot of there's a lot of fun folks coming from, you know, all through New England and, and the Mid-Atlantic. So there'll be some healthy competition and some, some good reuning afterward. Yeah, that sounds yeah, like fun. Busy spring with Rootstock. We had our Crooked Compass Adventure Trek. A couple of weeks ago, and there were calls of snow throughout the week, but luckily we dodged that. Um, and we had over 100 people come out for that, including 20 students from Penn State um, who were taking Mark Latanzi's what's it called, navigation and orienteering class. Yeah, I think it used to be some 
think Mark can correct me someday, but I, I think that it is, was traditionally a survival-based class, like an outdoor wilderness skills class, and he has taken it, and he's doing that stuff, but he's also kind of turning it into an adventure racing class, which is pretty cool. <laughs> yeah, so he's teaching it again in the fall, and they're actually going to come out to our um, Stockville race then. Yeah. So what was your um, the college kids, are they digging it, or are they just looking for an easy credit? <laughs> he looked a little bit like deers in headlights uh, at the race, but he said he got good feedback. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they we kind of designed uh, – so the Cricket Compass is an eight-hour foot um, foot course that's kind of a, a hybrid linear uh, plus optimal kind of road game format style. And um, the terrain in Pennsylvania, central central Pennsylvania in our state forest, it's, it's no joke. It's – it's a lot of very rocky, often very thick, very steep um, ridges. I mean, obviously nothing huge compared compared to what you guys have out out your way, but like you can kind of consistently be, you know, hitting five hundred thousand foot climbs, and mm-hmm. when you do that over and over again, and a lot of them are covered in, you know, again Mount Laurel and rhododendron and boulder fields, it it takes a toll. Pretty punishing, yeah. So, those of you who did nationals, those of those of your listeners who did nationals last year will remember that rhododendron. Yeah, um, but yeah. So what we we designed a kind of a well, we didn't really design anything particularly special, but we kind of gave them a modified version of our course that was just all optional, um, kind of a point to point format. They started uh, kind of at a, a man checkpoint that we had about halfway through the course, and then they worked their way back to the finish and kind of finished alongside all the racers. Um, so they, I think they got a good taste for it. Um, and yeah, Abby's right. Some of them definitely looked like fish out of water and looked, uh, hard to tell how much fun they were having, but there were definitely a handful of them that came across the finish line and they did great and they found almost all the checkpoints and, yeah. you know, were smiling and, and certainly had a good time. So I think it went well overall. Yeah. It's cool. We have a group of cadets from West Point that have come out the last two years for the fall foot race that we do, the Stockville. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're, we've been so far without a whole lot of like energy behind it and energy for it from other folks trying to get together like a collegiate or military division for that. And I think with the Penn Staters coming this year and hopefully West Point again, that might start to grow a little bit. We've reached out to some other outdoor clubs at local universities and, and I'm hoping they're, they're, um, that gains some traction. So, yeah, cool. I, you guys are putting a lot of effort into it and I, I appreciate it, even though I'm not there racing. So <laughs> maybe someday you'll come out, come come visit you. Well, I oh wow, segue into what I was going to ask you next because uh, Untamed. Yeah, you're coming out for that. I am. So um, you said you had the maps out for it already. What have you figured out? Anything? Figured any of Grant's secrets? Well, we have lots of ideas, but they're totally grounded in nothing um, <laughs> other than what our what what transportation experiences might be, um, <laughs> and like looking at the times of you know the finish line closes here and then the banquet starts at this time, and um, <laughs> it's just easier to look at maps of New England and have some sense of what's going on than maps of Tasmania. So. Yeah. So, Brett, do you have a spreadsheet set up for clues for Untamed New England? Nah, not not yet. Yeah, I mean, we. I've been the one that's more yeah. focused on it. <laughs> yeah, Abby does tend to focus more on figuring out like courses beforehand and such than I do at this point. But um, 
Yeah, I think we've been so focused on this 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 mysterious transportation experience that he talks about. Because um, I think in my mind, at least, I'm like, well, this is clearly not a normal bus ride. So what in the world are we doing? Um, and, you know, yeah, we've talked about, like, could we be using a ferry? Uh, there's an old cog railway that goes up to the summit of Mount Washington. That's kind of our best guess right now for the start. Yeah, that we're kind of thinking... He's got us, you know, camping or in one of the AMC lodges down in the White Mountains at the base of Washington overnight before the start. We know that we're, we're going somewhere. And then maybe we're on the Cog Railway up to the start and we're actually starting up on the ridge somewhere in the Whites on the Presidential Traverse. And, you know, from there, working our way south through the, the Lakes District um, down to Portsmouth. Uh, how exactly we get there, I, I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> I, that all makes good sense to me until you kind of get south of the lakes and then... Yeah, it's a little more developed. It, it, Yeah, south of there doesn't feel like normal, untamed New England country, so that that's where we're a little unsure. Yeah, but, well, I, you've got a few months to figure it out. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> Would, will you be more shocked if you were right or if you're like 500 miles off? <laughs> I think right. Yeah, because... I mean, we've been pretty good recently. Like we figured out Ireland leg for leg. Um, you had some good senses of Tasmania. Yeah. So and uh, and worlds uh, cowboy tough we were able to figure out pieces of as well. But I think we have more information for all those. I, I think yeah. I think Grant's keeping this one much closer to the chest yeah. than I think is normal at this point with yeah. expedition races. So. And I'm not thinking he's going to give us. I mean, he'll give us something, I guess. But yeah. Yeah. Well, maybe a plan or a yeah. little ahead of time. Yeah. So probably, yeah, he will give a planner. So. You know that race. The second he announced it, we were you know figuring out literally the second he announced it, we were figuring out childcare. Um, <laughs> it, it almost feels like our home race at this point, and yeah. we spend so much time in New England because Bren's family is up there and just love being outside there and. This year, I mean, it looks like it's going to be a reunion of, of so many of the teams that we love, you know, playing in the woods with. So regardless of what the course is, I have every expectation that Grant will dazzle us, and I'm just super excited to hang out with friends in the woods for a week. Yeah. I kind of um, – it's not my – you know, Primal Quest was probably my home race, but I'm kind of out of the PQ loop now. So, you know, obviously Rev 3, but uh, Untamed was the second – my second expedition that I covered. So, yeah, that's, that's where I don't think we actually officially met there, but we know, kind of became aware of you at that yeah. race. You did Randy? You may not remember this, but Untamed in 2012, uh, my birthday fell on day two or three, and you like snuggled me a couple of um, night three, a couple of um, what are they called? Chocolate reasons. Yep. As a birthday present. I don't know if you remember that. I, I actually do remember that. I wouldn't have remembered that it was you, but I remember doing that. So Yeah. Well, you, I'm forever indebted. Was that yeah. when we did the birthday candles or some other time? No, the birthday candles were later that night. That was yeah. in the TA when we got short course. <laughs> yeah. Well, at least you got yours. I um, Who did I? I got flowers for somebody at Cowboy Tough like year two or three. Oh, who was it? So her husband called me up and said, hey, get some flowers and put in their TA box. Oh, that's and, awesome. But um, one of her teammates saw him sitting there and threw him away. 
So, <laughs> wow. That's laid plans. <laughs> yeah, that's true. So, um, yeah, so I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm really pumped for Untamed. That's one of the, it's going to be a highlight of the summer for me. Oh, for sure. Yeah. We're excited to see you out there. Yeah. Um, what else going on with you guys? Anything else? <laughs> uh, I mean, we're, yeah, we, we've got a few, you know, between the Stockville and we're doing another big 12, maybe 15 hour race that we're really excited about, hopefully, uh, in August, uh, in terms of directing. So, a lot of scouting. Um, yeah, we're going up for the third edition of the main summer adventure race, and it's a 24 hour this mm-hmm. year. Um, and it seems like a lot of folks are actually using that as a precursor to Untamed, like a training weekend. So yeah, yeah, yeah. it'd be nice to see everybody out there and get to spend some time in the main woods. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's been a really fun year and a half of racing, and I'm just excited to kind of see it continue through the season. Yeah, you're uh, probably happy you decided to go, aren't you? I'm pretty excited. That I'm pretty yeah. happy that I decided to, yeah. to go and that my parents and my sister made that happen. Yeah. Yeah, we're, we're getting still, off. We're still very much at the kind of back in, uh, the glow of XPD. That's the competition side of it. The experience. Yeah. Yeah, we did as much wildlife as we did during that race. We saw wombats and uh, wallabies, and um, Eric saw a platypus, and we saw Tasmanian devils, and I'm pretty sure I saw a stingray, and we saw these things called quals, little cat lemur monkey things that Craig and Louise tell us are pretty rare to see in the wild. So I felt like everywhere we looked, we saw something new. Cool. That would be, yeah, that's a, that would be a fun place to go. Yeah. Other it than the fo- scary stuff, right? It wasn't like the scary stuff you encounter all over Australia. It felt much, much friendlier. Yeah. Well, cool. All right. Well, my idiot dog, crazy little dog came home <laughs> and Jimmy's all freaking out. So, yeah. okay. I was wondering what got him started. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, well, by the time this goes up, Brett will have War and Peace Part 2 done. So we'll link to that. We'll link to Abby's book and your report. And uh, I like talking to you guys. Yeah. <laughs> Sounds good, Randy. Thanks again. Okay. Well, I will say I'll see you in uh, July. That sounds great. Awesome. We'll look forward to seeing you. All right. Thanks. Have a good spring. We will. All right. Bye. Bye. talking about the power of love now. I'm going to tell you what love can do. You know when they say love makes the world go round, that's the truth. Love can make you or break you. It can make you laugh, it can make you cry. It can make you happy, it can make you sad. Or if you hung out real bad In a case of jealousy, love can make you mad Oh yeah Everybody, everybody's got his own thing Everybody's got his way of doing a thing 
I wish I'd attempt to do a tune that is very popular. It was written by one of the great young songwriters of today. Now, I don't know what he was thinking about or what inspired him to write this tune, but it's a deep tune. It's a deep meaning to this tune because it shows you what the power of love can do. And I shall attempt it to do it my way, my own interpretation of it. Like I say, everybody got his own thing. I'm gonna bring it on down to Soulsville. I want you to bear along with me for a few minutes while I set it up. Now I want your imagination. I want you to travel with me. Oh, come on, come on, come on. This young man was raised in the hills of Tennessee. When he reached the age of maturity, he moved to the West Coast. And he fell in love when he got out there to this young girl. Oh man, she was out of sight. She was bad. And they started dating. Girls, I don't mean to come down on you. But this man loved this woman so. You know, they said love is blind. He could see no wrong. No, no, no. He worked every day. And sometimes he pulled overtime, double time, triple time. He bought anything that this woman's heart desired, anything that he could drink and scrape. His last time on the woman because he loved her. You know, girls, you can take love and kindness sometimes for weakness. And she took it for granted. She said, I got a fool, and I know I got a fool. I got a good thing. Yeah, she was standing around on the corner. You understand? Meet with her friend. She would go to the beauty salon, get her hair fixed. She'd go shopping. And she would brag about her good thing that she's got. Tipped out on him. She ain't nobody gonna believe what to tell him, no way. Fool. Oh, yeah, girls, you do like that sometimes. But one day, one day, old boy got sick and he had to come home. I don't have to tell you what he found. Oh, it hurt him so bad. He said, baby, mama, why? That's all he could say. 
That's all he could say. He was hurt. But she said, oh, go on, fool, you doing it. But the man wasn't doing it, but that's the only excuse she could give him. He said, Mama, I can't take it. I got to leave you. I'm going to leave you. He packed his little rag, you understand? And he started out the door. And when he reached the driveway, you understand, he went in that bag just like my man Tyrone Davis. And he said, oh, mama, 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 can I change all my mind? You see, the power of love was upon him. And he came back. Oh, yes, he did. Well, she tried to straighten up. She said she was going to straighten up. She got a little job to help him out with the bills, too. But that was just a sham. Because he found it again and again. And seven times he left this woman. And seven times he came back. Oh, but you know, the heart can take so much. That's right. You can kick a dog around. For so long, and he'll get tired. He'll turn, and he'll take all that he could stand. And the eighth time that this went down, he said, "Mom, I got to go." With tears in his eyes, he said, "I'm gonna leave you, baby." He said, "I ain't coming back." He said, "I'm leaving my heart right here, but I got to go." You see, cause this man can't take no more. She didn't believe it. Packed his clothes. He got in his 1965 Ford. He started out. Three times he started to turn back before he reached the outskirts of the city. But he kept on going. And he's going down the highway. I guess it was around 3.30 in the morning. He could hardly see the road with tears in his eyes. That's right. He was crying. They were meeting on his chin. He could barely see the side that ran on the side of the road. The next town, 125 miles away. And these very words came into his mind. He said, By the time I get to Phoenix, she'll be rising. Oh, and she'll find. While I'm hanging on the door She'll laugh When she reads the part That says I'm leaving And she'll be 
Cause I've loved that girl So many times before Oh By the time I make the cookie She'll be working And she'll probably Stop at lunch Just to give her Her sweet goodbye A call Oh, she'll hear All the phone Keep right on ringing And ringing and ringing And ringing Oh, and ringing Off the wall Mama, 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 that's all. And by the time I get to Oklahoma, she'll be sleeping. She'll turn softly in a restless sleep. Just to think I I would really But time after time After time after time And time again I tried to tell her so But she was a non-believer And she
Oh, no. 